Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ohioan Podcast Network. Craig Schaub here with George Thomas of the Akron Beacon Journal. George, it's been a couple of weeks. We are back at it, and boy, do we have a great show today. We have some blockbusters, some independent movies. How are you doing on this kind of cold, rainy Thursday? It's not rainy here. Okay. cold here. We still got the 60s. Oh, okay. Well, we're in the 50s now. We've slowly but surely gotten a little cooler um, well, it's been a couple weeks. How have you been? Believe it or not, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, George, a great reporter for the Akron Beacon Journal covering the Browns and Akron Zips. A uh, big week for uh, the Browns. Obviously, you made an appearance yesterday on uh, sort of going behind enemy lines there on the Steelers podcast that uh, our friend Chris set you up with. So I uh, had a chance to listen to that. You were great as always. So um Glad you survived the uh, the onslaught of Steeler Nation there. Uh, you know, I, that was actually fun. I was out of it last night. Yeah. <laughs> it's been that kind of week. Yeah. But well, I had a good time. And it, yeah. Well, it's always good that in between all your football coverage, you get a chance to watch some movies and you've got a chance to watch uh, some of the big fall releases. Our first one is maybe the biggest, the most anticipated possibly of the fall season was Dune. So Denis Villeneuve is back, my one of my favorite directors working today. Um, loved Blade Runner 2049. I loved Arrival. I loved Prisoners. Sicario is fantastic. George is Dune fantastic. Are we uh, on a great run here of Denis Villeneuve films? I, I think he's evolved into one of those directors who can't make a bad movie. Right. Um, <laughs> because... Dune is one of those films that is just so intriguing as far as its premise goes. And it's, <laughs> I want to say it's basically about interstellar drug deals, but, <laughs> and, and, and fuel for inter, or inter, it, it, it's about interstellar, whatever you want to call the spice. It's just, right. It's just, very, very different. Yeah, I think his sensibilities fit it perfectly because Arrival and uh, Blade Runner uh, 2049, though being quote unquote mainstream science fiction, yeah, they are they have a different kind of tone to them. They do. You, I completely you find, agree. You you find the same aesthetic here. Okay, and along with a compelling story compelling compelling main story but the backstories are equally intriguing as well and tells the story of of young paul atreides a messianic figure allegedly in this story whose family is i don't know if you say given whatever a planet where this mysterious spice is mined and apparently the spice is what allows interstellar interstellar travel and you know there's no altruism here the 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 entreaties are looking to get get rich they're more benevolent than the harkonnen clan that 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 gave them this planet but still it's all about profit motive but we have have this this backstory of their son Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, which yeah. is Emma, who who who's displaying, I don't know if you call them powers or pressions of of being tied to this planet and its people, its inhabitants, without ever having really been to the planet. That's where the first film dr- jumps off. Now, if you're looking for nonstop action don't do not this is one gorgeous intriguing setup film right and just when it's gonna take that next level boom it ends right now it's a good thing for us (laughs) that they've greenlit dune part two (laughs) right but you're going to have to wait for it for a while. And that's too bad. Yeah. 
I gave the movie an A minus. I enjoyed every bit of it. I enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed the 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 story. I enjoyed the look, which is just absolutely wonderful in scope and gorgeous. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about sort of uh, Villeneuve's sort of the depth touch that he puts on some of his, uh, especially science fiction, like Arrival, um, which, like you said, you know, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049 are, are very much mainstream films, but they don't play out like mainstream films necessarily. No. Um, you know, sort of the thinking man's science fiction. Uh, yeah, you know, when, when the action comes in Blade Runner 2049, it's well-crafted, um, but it's it's not, like you said, you know, with Dune here, not a wall-to-wall action film that people maybe going in expecting or hoping for so they have to also maybe temper those expectations of what if especially if they've never seen a villeneuve film that this is kind of the way he makes his films which you know i think we we can all appreciate given the you know sort of the beating you over the head with some of the action sci-fi fantasy films we've seen especially in the marvel cinematic universe where it's wall-to-wall action it's nice to kind of take a step back and let everything breathe a little bit. And when the action comes, it's still very top notch. Oh, very much so. And, and and mind you, even, even those action sequences have scope. Yep. They're impressive. Um, the, the film work, the filming is impressive. The look is impressive. There's, there's nothing to not like about this film. Yeah. In, interesting that you bring that up. Um, you know, I think with with especially with Villeneuve, you know, a lot of people loved the the look of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That was shot by Roger Deakins, who's you know, I mean, he's, you know, he might as well be the Martin Scorsese of cinematography. This time around, he uses Greg Frazier, who's, I mean, he shot some wonderful films too, Zero Dark Thirty. And, you know, this is a guy that's a very accomplished, you know, director of photography. Do you feel like, uh, you know, this is as beautiful maybe as Blade Runner twenty forty nine? That one Deakins, that elusive Oscar. I think it's more beautiful because okay. it, it, because he's got less to work with. Right. That makes sense. Right. He's it's 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 minimalist, but it's Maximus. Right. How's that for a bad pun? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you you know you mentioned the box office. You mentioned the fact that uh, a part two is already been greenlit. Um, I know that HBO Max, I believe it's HBO Max, not HBO, but HBO Max is working on a sisterhood project uh, that's sort of, you know, branching off this Dune universe. Um, I was kind of a little surprised, though. I mean, do you think that uh, the studio is just saying, you know what, we're not going to worry so much about the box office, even though 40 million opening weekend is not bad? Usually you don't get greenlit off of a $40 million opening weekend for a movie that's probably in that $200 million production budget range. Well, what you have to remember is Villanova made a stink about this being. <laughs> I I think I think they came up with a minimum number that the film had to do right. box office wise to say to him, yeah, go ahead and do your second movie. That's what I that's that's what I think. Right. And I should I should probably preface it by saying that the money worldwide box office already over 223 million. So it had it's had a very nice international run thus far with over 182 million dollars made. So I should I should say that domestically it's its first weekend. It's it's going to maybe lose a little bit. Usually we see 40, 50 percent drops in second weekends unless that word of mouth, you know, happens like an avatar, for instance. So there, there should be some expectations that 40 million is probably not attainable just yet, especially with Eternals getting ready to release next week. Um, you know, probably not going to see a huge domestic box office, but internationally kind of saves it a little bit. And I think like you're right, they probably had a target in mind saying, hey, if we can make 40 million opening weekend domestically, we had good streaming numbers and we'll get to that here in a second. That, uh, you know, I also I want to I want to ask you this, though. Do you think and I know it's not necessarily 100 percent a shoe in, but do you think part of this is they that Warner Brothers just lost Christopher Nolan to Universal and they want to not just save face, but they want to make sure that they're keeping one of their great young filmmakers in the saddle for the next 
20, 30 years like they've done with Clint Eastwood, for instance. Do you think that that's part of this green light process? Oh, I definitely think it's part of the green. You lost Christopher freaking Nolan. Right. The guy who delivered arguably the best Batman films ever made. Absolutely, yeah. With, with, with the the last the la- the last two in the trilogy each going over a billion dollars, and I can't figure out why the first one didn't, because I think it's it's the best one of of the three. I I almost think it was because people didn't realize what it was. Like they just assumed it was. I, what was it? Maybe six years or so after those uh, Joel Schumacher debacles. And I think people were kind of like, okay, here we go, another Batman movie. And they didn't realize like how true to life Batman it was, how gritty it was, and just how well-crafted it was. Criminally underrated Batman Begins, very much so. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So, yeah, I think a part of this is them saving face. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. The, the problem is... He doesn't have the box office cachet. Sure, yeah. That Nolan does. No, he does not. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous filmmaker. Probably Nolan's equal at this point. Yeah. But if if, if if they're saving face, they're doing so on an artistic basis. Sure. Which I'm never going to complain about. No, no, no. I mean, this is the kind of guy that you're hoping that Warner Brothers does not care and I think they, they kind of got that way, too, with, with Nolan, because I, I think it was a hard sell for someone to come in and say, I want $100 million, $200 million for a war movie like Dunkirk, and Warner Brothers didn't really bat an eye. And they said, oh, you want to release it in July? Sure, go ahead. So, you know, I, I think you're right where, you know, they, they obviously, because of his, you know, success with the Dark Knight trilogy, especially the last two films, you know, going over a billion dollars. Obviously, he had a lot of success uh, with Inception. Interstellar wasn't the big box office return that the other movies were, but I don't think anybody really expected a really artistic space film to really generate a lot of viewership, even though Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway were great stars for that film. But uh, you're right, you know, Villeneuve's films, have they're kind of like the... They're great films, but they're almost box office successes. Like twenty, you know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine was sort of a domestic flop. You know, Sicario probably did. It's probably the best value, the bang for the buck that the studios had. Absolutely. Um, you know, Arrival. I don't recall ever really being a huge box office success, but again, you know, it, it, that's one of those thinking man's movies. I don't think a lot of expectations were there. Blade Runner was sort of the the thing I think they really were hit, you know, hitching their wagons on him too. And it probably didn't do what they hoped it would do. But then again, they still said, you know what, we want you to make Dune. And certainly it looks like it's going to pay off for Warner brothers. And see, and see, I'm not going to blame him for blade runner 2049. Oh, no, no, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't blame him for it. Yeah. I know. But, but, but one thing about that, that movie as the, the original, as great as it is, it's always been a niche kind of cult classic. Right. No you one saw I mean? that movie either. <laughs> yeah, right. So as great as it is, no one saw the original Blade Runner. I mean, it right. was, yeah. So, you know, but bravo for Warner Brothers for keeping him happy. Bravo to Warner Brothers for, for green lighting part two. Yeah. That's well, it seems like, like they want to fast track it too because um, – I've heard reports that 2023 is when they want the uh, the second movie to come out. Um, obviously, he's been announced as the the next director of a sort of a reboot of Cleopatra. Um, so I kind of wonder if that's going to get pushed aside with this green light, or maybe Cleopatra will be a little bit more of a um, smaller production, maybe a few months, a couple of you know, maybe six, you know maybe four or five months, maybe at the most or something before getting into Dune. But, you know, I'm glad they're giving him this, this, you know, autonomy at, at Warner Brothers. And I guess they have no choice because at this point, you know, the only other legacy director you can think of at Warner's is, is Clint Eastwood. And it's been a while for Eastwood since he's made something great. And the guy's 90 years old. So you need to sort of get your next guy and or next girl. And, and certainly Villeneuve is sort of that guy. By the way, folks, that's not an insult. Clint Eastwood really is 90 plus years old. Yes. So anything he does <laughs> at 90 years old, when you make a movie, that's pretty damn impressive. Yeah. You 
Yes. And I will I will give credit where credit is due to Eastwood. I, I think his run in the mid 2000s with Million Dollar Baby, Flags of Our Fathers, and then Letters from Iwo Jima, a great little trio of movies. Letters from Iwo Jima, one of my favorite war movies of all time, and Million Dollar Baby. Whether you want to call it a sports movie or not, it's a great movie anyway. And, uh, you know, Eastwood was what in his uh, early or mid 70s when he made, when he's making like two. I mean, he literally made two great war movies in one year, which is, yeah. you know, geez, that's almost impossible to make one great war movie. And he's making two really good ones in, in a single seat in a single year. So um one of the things I wanted to ask you about with Dune is they've they've really highlighted the young cast, Chalamet, obviously, as you uh, the aforementioned actor, um, but Zendaya. also Zendaya. Now, this is one thing I wanted to ask because a lot of people are complaining that she's not really in the movie all that much, but obviously she's being marketed as a star, uh, a lead. Um, what what did you think about this? I mean, obviously the marketing campaign's going after that youthful audience, but I what mean, was she? What do you want to bet that's in her contract? <laughs> I mean, that, chances are they had to agree with that, agree to that in, in her in her in her negotiations. Okay, well that's I mean, fine. I mean, I, I've, I've heard she's right. only in the movie for seven minutes, and then right. maybe, okay. I mean, there there she's she's in the movie for seven minutes, where she she's actually talking. Right. That that's about the the the, the time span. But you see her throughout the movie. Okay. There's just no interaction, and she's not saying anything. Okay. Well, it's like funny said, because you know a lot of movie. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of people. You know, Jason Momoa's in here. Um, you know, Oscar Isaac, obviously, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem. It's a great cast. Although I don't think you're gonna you know market a blockbuster movie with Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin as great as they are. You know, it, it's it's just you're going to market Chalamet and, and Zendaya because those are the you know, they're trying to get that youthful box office because, you know, I mean, I was born the same year as the first as the David Lynch Dune movie. Um, so I obviously didn't see that in theaters. I have seen it and it's terrible. But <laughs> uh, I know that the I know that I don't think anybody really liked the first or the well, I shouldn't say the first Dune movie. It was just Dune, the David Lynch film. Um, you know, obviously this is a, a big science fiction blockbuster. It's an, it's an epic. You would think that, you know, the, the novel that came out in 65 really inspired probably a lot of science fiction, fantasy films and, and TV shows over the years. Um, do you think that, uh, that Villeneuve kind of atones for the mess that was David Lynch's Dune? In the interest of full disclosure, didn't see it. Okay. I was in high, I think I was, was that 84 or 83? 84? 84. Okay, I was just coming out of high school, so screw you. <laughs> um, and I remember specifically being told to avoid it. So right. I avoided it. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money lining my pockets back then. So if somebody gave me a tip on a movie, nine times out of ten, I was going to pay attention to it. Right. I don't know if you can really atone for another... another um, filmmakers transgressions right however from the clips i've seen this has the scope and it's it seems less campy right right from from what i've seen yeah and that's the best way to put it were you ever aware of the uh alejandro jodorowsky dune movie that never came to be like that i mean from what from what i've I, there's actually a, a documentary on this this film that was never made because it was so just crazy like over the top holy crap in scope just really esoteric and just way too much for people that they could probably comprehend it never ended up seeing the light light of day because no one thought anybody would watch it because it's that crazy uh, were you ever aware of the Jodorowsky uh, film that almost came to be? No, I was. I was not. Okay. But it, yeah. see, the the only other the only other adaptation I was aware of was apparently the Sci-Fi Channel tried to do. Oh something. yeah, that they had a mini series or something. Years or, ago, yeah, yeah. When they were making a play for being the Sci-Fi Channel, when it right. was actually Sci-Fi, right? So yeah. 
that's I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Only well, you know, aware of. Right. That's I'm glad you brought that up because I did I did forget about that, but I, I do remember seeing something, you know, in anticipation of this movie coming out. Um well, we you know we talked a little bit about the box office streaming. Obviously, this is a you know at home uh, HBO Max release as well. Looking at the streaming, I mean HBO Max is pretty pleased uh, from what they've said in releases. Um, Dune did 1.9 million uh, viewers uh, over the uh, the opening weekend, which uh, kind of falls in line with what Zack Snyder's Justice League did at 1.8 million. Uh, the Suicide Squad did 2.8 million. Um, but uh, also trailing uh, Wonder Woman, which came out last Christmas, 2.2 million. Uh, Mortal Kombat did 3.8 million. Space Jam did 2.1 million. This is according to Variety. Um, you know, obviously it did pretty well. I mean, you know, it might people still might be shying away from the theaters because of the Delta variant, COVID. Um, that's got to be also encouraging for HBO Max and, and just for the studio to say, okay, we can probably move forward with some of these projects. There's got to be an audience out there because people, you know, did respond pretty well, at least uh, streaming wise to this film. Um, HBO Max has been adding uh, subscribers at a steady clip this year. So this yeah. certainly does not hurt. Right. Um it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to them when they go back to a traditional model. Yeah. You know what they're going to, but even though they're doing that, I mean, they're still reducing that. Um, well, I you guess know. it used to be the 90 day window. Now it's probably closer to like 45. So I kind of wonder if they're, they're okay with that. And I know that's one of the, the ideas here moving forward with the, the Dune part two or whatever the Dune sequel um, will definitely not be a streaming release. And and I think Warner Brothers is fine with saying that now that it'll be maybe two or three years from now. But I, I think this has been a, a strategy that's probably worked out for them in some way. Yeah, you could say that the big con was that they lost Christopher Nolan due to it. But the irony of all of that is Warner Brothers literally released Nolan's film only in theaters in the height of the pandemic when it did very little box office at least domestically and nolan's the one that got so mad he left you know what i mean i know patty jenkins you know from wonder woman uh also you know kind of raised some hell and so did bill new but you know christopher nolan got all the cake and could eat it too and he still left you know i mean they could have easily said nope we can't do this we know we're not going to recoup the box office it's just going to be too much to distribute why should we do this and they still did it and he still left well, that's the power of an auteur. So. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I can't wait to watch uh, Nolan's Oppenheimer film on uh, Peacock. You know, um, <laughs> not that not, not that Universal is going to be stupid enough to release it same day on Peacock. But you know what, though, for as much hell as HBO Max has gotten for these same day releases, Peacock is doing it just as much. They did it with the Boss Baby sequel. They did it with Halloween Kills. So to be blunt. You know, I, I mean, HBO Max kind of trend set it a little bit here. And, you know, oh, they did. you know, I mean, Peacock has copied off of it. And now, granted, look, no one cares about the Boss Baby sequel. No, and, few, and few people care about the Halloween Kills release. But still, most people are like, you know, you guys are killing the box office. And they say that about HBO Max all the time. But they don't say anything about the Halloween box office being impacted by the same day release for Peacock. I think Halloween did fifty million dollars, though. Well, yeah, but it's also a franchise that's what you know, forty years old or whatever, and you know, it's it's got a built-in audience of people and, that well, will exactly. Watch it. I, I I guarantee you they did spend fifty million dollars on that movie. I Probably mean, not. highest highest priced talent there is Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, hopefully and, she got full freight and and points on the on the back end. Hopefully for her. Well, there you go. So, yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure I'm sure Universal's very pleased with the box office and the streaming numbers i'm sure they've probably gotten although i haven't really seen what their streaming you know data has said about halloween kills for instance but okay well george i'm very very pleased that you like dune i can't wait to see it now that uh, my my schedule my life is getting a little bit more uh you know not so crazy i'll probably be able to see it this weekend um, another big release, though, this weekend is a, another movie that I'm kind of interested in. It's kind of been a, a mild darling, maybe, on the festival circuit, is Last Night in Soho. Uh, George, tell us a little bit about this film. You know what? 
we you you and I have had the horror horror discussion, right? Yes, we have. Yes, plenty of times. I had I knew it was Edgar Wright mm-hmm. going into the 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 critic screening for this, and I showed up simply because it was Edgar Wright, and I loved uh, Baby Driver. Yeah, and he takes that aesthetic, that cool aesthetic <laughs> that he has, and transfers it into. A, tra- a time travel horror story, right? And takes us back to the '60s, where a fashion design student of of modern day London, she's basically forced out of her dorm. She goes, she rents a, a room in an uh, elderly woman's home, and she, when she, you know, she likes to sleep to music. She puts on her her vinyl. I can appreciate that about that character. She puts on her vinyl and it's it's 60s tunes. When she goes to sleep, she quote unquote awakens and it's the 60s. And she's seeing the life of a, a young woman approximately her age over the course of never really says how long she's going through this, but eventually she watches as this young woman's life devolves. Right. And at what at, at, at some point, and I'm trying to, to tell you about this without giving too much away, it just turns into a oh my god horror movie. Right. And it's like, and we're talking legitimate, legitimate scares. Right. Jumping out of your seat. I the person I was with screamed at one point. <laughs> I mean, and you you add Wright's sensibilities, his ear for music, appropriate music and soundtracks. Yes, yes. And and some great performances, including from the late Diana Rigg as that elderly woman, that elderly landlord. Right. And this is just a great horror film. It's the kind of horror film that I we, we were talking about Halloween and its age. I consider the Halloween and Friday the 13th films the downfall of horror and horror in American cinema. All right. For the most part. I, I appreciate you saying that. It's a hot take, but I completely love that take. So, but before that, you got genuine ghost stories. You know what I mean? Right. It, it was about the tension, not the violence. Yes. And this movie is, is 95. There's some violence, but it's 97% about building that tension and getting that payoff. Yeah. And I could appreciate all of that. And it's Edgar Wright. So. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I'm looking forward to this primarily because of Edgar Wright. And for, for those people who may not know who that director is, obviously George mentioned Baby Driver, which... Uh, as, as far as his recent films, that's probably the one that people might have seen or, you know, whatever. And you're absolutely right. He has great, a great ear for soundtrack and using music in his film. Uh, Baby Driver was an absolute blast of a film. But I will say this. My favorite Edgar Wright film is Hot Fuzz. I love that. The Simon Pegg movies? It, yes. The, the Hot Fuzz, the, the, the satirical, over-the-top action police movie is just satire at its best he just totally rips apart the action epic the hero action movie i love that film simon pig was hilarious the whole movie was just one great gag or joke or sequence after another the violence is hilarious in that he just has such an eye as a stylish filmmaker but he's not over the top stylish he he can wrangle himself in when he needs to and, you know, Baby Driver is one of those movies where, you know, he can wrangle himself in while still making something look stylish. But Hot Fuzz, my favorite Edgar Wright movie, although Baby Driver is a, is a very close second. I know a lot of people probably, especially like Gen Z, probably love like Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which is a, a stylish, fun movie, too. My younger son loves that one. Yeah. Not I as great, it. though, for me. No, I, I was iffy on that one when it came yeah. out. I, I remember getting it, giving it a decidedly mixed review. Yeah. And Shaun of the Dead is hilarious, too. I hate zombie movies with a passion. I think they're 
there there's just no you know we taught you just mentioned the you know the the downfall of the horror movie with the slasher cut them up into a million pieces kill people put knives through their face whatever Shaun of the dead turned the zombie genre upside down with its comedy usually zombies are just terrible villains because they don't talk they don't have any charisma and you like to have villains like those classic James Bond movies or, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC Universe where you have villains that, you know, not that you root for, but you at least, you know, are drawn to them in some capacity. And, you know, Shaun of the Dead made fun of all of that. They had a lot of fun with the kills. So I, I very much enjoyed Shaun of the Dead. Edgar Wright, you know, certainly a talented filmmaker. Uh, what was your final grade there on Last Night in Soho? I think I gave it a B plus. Okay. And I know it, you know, also stars Anya Taylor Joy, who's sort of the you know the the rising star through the ranks of Hollywood right now too, with the uh, the Queen's Gambit among other things that she's done, but certainly getting a, a chance to to you know show off her chops as well. You know who his soundtrack era reminds me of? Who? Tarantino. Yeah. You know, has that knack. He, it's like they just know exactly what to to drop in there at the right moment in the right scene at the right mo you know the right emotional tone it just yeah yeah I, I, that's a great comparison um in you know baby driver was probably the perfect movie for him because it's very reliant on the soundtrack not just the action on screen and some of the performances but you were kind of talking too about last night in soho sort of evolving into a horror movie when, the more I think about, um, you know, when we, it's been a while since I've seen Baby Driver, although every now and then it's on TV, and I might, you know, watch a few minutes here and there. Um, you know, that movie kind of devolves, not devolves, I shouldn't say, evolves into sort of a horror movie where, you yeah. know, John Hamm's character is is kind of on the war path, trying to, fa uh, trying to find Baby and his girlfriend after the, you know, his girlfriend gets killed in that shootout. And it kind of becomes like a, like a car chase horror movie because they're going at each other sort of in this really tonal shift in that third act when they're, you know, when John Hamm and Angel Elgort's uh, characters are kind of going at each other to, to finish out the film. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. At times I, I will say when I first saw the film in theaters, um, I was like really ready to go four stars on it. And then the third act like I said, it evolves into that horror movie, and I think it kind of sells itself short a little bit, where it could have just been a fun action thriller that didn't take itself too seriously. But then I think the tonal shift was so drastic from where the rest of the film was, it kind of made me take a, a half a star away, even though I really, you know, even though that was well-crafted, it just, the tonal shift at the time seemed a jarring. little bit out of the ordinary. Yeah, it was, it was jarring. Yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's a fun movie. I love Baby Driver. Um, although it's funny to see uh, how some of the cast members of that film have not aged all that well uh, in some particular fashion. But, uh, you know, I don't uh, hold that against any of them. But uh, good cast at the time. We just kind of don't talk too much about the cast anymore at this point, given some of the things that have come out uh, about some of them. So uh, it's hard to find a, a cast member with no skeletons in the closet or... Uh, anything going on, but uh, Edgar Wright, Last Night in Soho, definitely something. Do you think this is uh, kind of a movie that, not necessarily for him, but maybe could generate any Oscar buzz in any category or anything like that, or is it just a really solid fall release? It's just a really, really very solid fall release. Okay, well, nothing wrong with that. We still need those. Um, a movie that may generate some Oscar buzz, or at least was expected to, is our last film we're going to discuss, and that's The French Dispatch. Uh, George, got to tell you, Wes Anderson, he is a uh, an acquired taste, I think, at times as a filmmaker. Um, I think the only movie that I can really say that I've seen slash liked was probably The Grand Bud Budapest Hotel, and that was primarily for the ensemble cast and Ray Fiennes just killing it in that film. Other than that, I've never really gotten into a whole lot of Wes Anderson movies. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I mean, well, he he is definitely an acquired taste. Yeah. And the only one only one of his films I remember enjoying remotely was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzu, where Bill okay. Murray is just yeah. allowed to be Bill Murray. Right. So I'm I'm totally with you. That being said, there were parts of the French Dispatch that I really enjoyed. And when you get 
Benicio del Toro <laughs> right. playing a com- criminally insane artist and Adrian Brody, the wealthy patron trying to exploit his talent, you you tend not to turn away and you, you welcome you welcome the vibe. Right. Now mind you, the weakest part of this movie and, and to set it up, it's 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 an anthology film set up like a magazine. It's it's Wes Anderson's ode uh, to the New Yorker, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. The weakest part of this movie is that he started with the best segment first. Okay. Or at least it, there's a smaller one with o, Owen Wilson before it, but the, it the meat of the movie. The, he started with the best first, right. and it's it's it, it raises the bar for what you expect for the rest of the film, and after you go through dealing with Benicio del Toro, his character's eccentricities, the way um, Adrian Brody's character and his uncles try to exploit him, him dealing, the, 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 the artist dealing with his muse and, and everything, the bar is set so high that much of everything else is a letdown. Okay. Now, it, it redeems itself a little bit with the final vignette segment whatever you want to call it where jeffrey wright shows up as a james baldwin s character and it goes through process of explaining how he started writing for this magazine and the the story he wrote that appeared in this this magazine's final issue um again though benicio del toro some jeffrey wright and you you can only blame wes wes anderson for that um, Timothy Chalamet is in this one. Yes, as well. yes, he is. Yeah. And I, there's his segment with Francis McDormand is probably the least enjoyable of all of them. And that goes back to it being Wes Anderson being an acquired taste because yeah. it's definitely got his groove on it. Well, you mentioned, you know, some of the stars in this film. I mean, that's one of the things that's sort of synonymous with Wes Anderson, the, you know, the little independent filmmaker that could, you know, he usually is able to get a a, a great cast. I mean, he's worked a lot with Edward Norton. Adrian Brody is a sort of a full time Owen Wilson. Uh, Tilda Swinton's in here. Francis McDormand, as you said, uh, Chalamet. Del Toro. I mean, this is, you know... How many Oscar winners are in this? Right. I mean, this is a a who's who of just actors, actors. Bill Murray, of course. Um, You know, Matthew Almerich, who's got an Oscar nomination as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those films where I'm I'm also excited. I think I was drawn to this when the the first trailers released last year uh, because it really felt like a journalism movie. And, of course, that's kind of something that I like to gravitate towards, too. Uh, because, you know, there's so few of them and there's so few good of them that, you know, you really are rooting for a movie like this to succeed because it, it is sort of that ode to journalism. And you hope that it uh, tells the story in a good way, in the right way. And, and you know, it's a, it's a Wes Anderson movie, so I don't anticipate it, you know, staying on the rails sometimes. I mean, you know, that's he's sometimes at his best when he's off the rails, but then he's also sometimes like too quirky for his own good, maybe, if that makes sense. That defines the Timothy Chalamet. It's like okay, right? You know, and you know he's he had you know Isle of the Dogs was okay. I mean, I do remember seeing that, uh, but the Grand Budapest Hotel was probably the one hype movie that I really thought, yeah, that deserved the hype at the time because, and again, I think it was it goes back to Ray Fiennes just killed it. The rest of the cast was fantastic. There were some quirky, fun moments, but it seemed kind of contained a little bit more than a normal Wes Anderson movie like, a you know, Moonrise Kingdom or the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, I know everybody loves Rushmore. I don't really care for Rushmore. I've never gotten into that. I don't think I ever will. Bottle Rocket is, you know, his sort of his, you know, announcement onto the screen as a director. Again, just kind of like, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I know some people do and they love Wes Anderson and the Academy certainly does. I mean, this is a, a seven-time Oscar nominee, so certainly this is awards bait. Do you think it lives up to the hype of any kind? I mean, Del Toro's performance or Anderson's writing or directing or anything stand out that might 
be in the in the hunt for gold? I'm I'm gonna be honest with one thing. Wes Anderson's writing is so dense and so clever. He could be almost nominated for any film he puts out for writing. Right. This this is really no exception. The one thing that really impressed me was the the writing, the dialogue. Right. I love Benicio del Toro. You don't see him enough, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. And it's like I right. could see him being nominated for this role. Absolutely, without a right. doubt. Well, I mean, it's it's you know the Academy tends to gravitate towards Anderson, which is funny because. We always, you know, hear people kind of badmouth the Academy because they don't go for those, you know, out, outside the box thinking directors or writers or actors. And yet they always seem to reward Wes Anderson because maybe he's found a way to to take the quirkiness and become more mainstream or something. Or, you know, they're trying to, you know, sell tickets for, or, you know, hopefully people will, you know watch a Wes Anderson movie, although most people don't really go to Wes Anderson movies. So I'm not really sure if they're, if they think they're capitalizing on some youth movement that are going to watch the Oscars because Wes Anderson's nominated. I don't really think that's possible, I but that's happening. I mean, at this point, he's what, two decades into his career. Yeah. I mean, 1994 was his, uh, was bottle rocket. So um, he's an old man by those standards. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's 52. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's, it's like you said, acquired taste. This isn't a, I, I, I gave it the movie overall, I gave it a B, but a, a normal situation, if I'm shelling out money for movies, I'm not going. Right. I'm not paying for this. So yeah. that, that's just real. But I could appreciate his artistry. So. Right. Well, that happens. I mean, obviously, um it's it's probably going to be Oscar bait, and I'm sure you know the studio will try to get behind it maybe here in the fall and and try to campaign for something maybe Del Toro and supporting work or you know Anderson as a writer and you know I mean I think because of his pedigree as a writer you almost don't even need to to really go out on his behalf if you're the studio or anybody and you know a four year consideration kind of uh, you know campaign because you know he just seems to resonate with the uh the academy i i don't know if it's because they want to seem like they're hip and that they they reward quirkiness because like the royal tenenbaums you know come on i don't really think that was really screenplay worthy uh moonrise kingdom kind of the same way i mean good solid movie but not really you know oscar worthy grand budapest hotel i think deserved it and i i'm glad he got a directing award you know a nomination for that um, I think Ray Fine should have, you know, you know, got in there and, and maybe won, but because he was great. I mean, he made that movie. The ensemble cast was fun, but Ray Fines was just fantastic in that film. But um, I don't know. I think the Academy just likes Wes Anderson, kind of like they, you know, you're probably going to get Tarantino nominated in a category. Um, you seem to, you know, get Spike Lee nominated, even though he's well deserving most of the time, but. I think they like to have him in there. So when he gets beat, he gets pissed off or something and starts looking at the camera mean mugging or whatever. <laughs> Although he's thankfully Spike Lee has won his Oscar won for writing. Yes, yes, he did. Well, and it was well-deserved, but you know, it's kind of the, the Scorsese effect, you know, Scorsese wins an Oscar for probably his, a good film, a, a really good, not film, best started, film, but not his best. Spike Lee should have won for Do the Right Thing. No question about it. He didn't. But, you know, Black Klansman's a fantastic film. Uh, Tarantino should have won for Pulp Fiction. He didn't. So, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is with the Academy. And that's why we see Wes Anderson nominated every three years, it seems like. Yeah, well, even Tarantino's going to get his makeup Oscar someday. Well, if he's only got one more film left in the chamber, he better uh, he better make sure it's good enough because you know he says he's retiring after whatever his last film will be. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Um, I think I would believe it. I guess it depends on. I don't think it's an issue with money. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, some, some of those people just, you know, he's not the prolific filmmaker. He doesn't make a film every other year like Scorsese. So I wouldn't be shocked if he makes like what he, even if it's not a masterpiece, because I mean, he's made masterpieces. I really was a huge fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
And I thought it was maybe his most in, introspective work that he's done. I mean, it really, that whole thematical element of, you know, every day we get a little older and we get a little bit worse than we were the day before kind of motif. And, um, you know, I think it was maybe his, it's certainly maybe his best film since probably the, the acting of Inglorious Bastards carried that film, but certainly I thought it was his best film since Pulp Fiction. Um, and even though I'm a big fan of Django Unchained and, and, uh, Inglorious Bastards, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, probably maybe his most complete work, you could argue, because it was about something deeper and deeper in meaning rather than, you know, the, the shock value and some of the intricacies of Pulp Fiction and its narrative structure. It didn't really like it didn't really dive deep below the skin and, and get into your soul. Like I think once upon a time in Hollywood kind of did. Fair enough. Yeah. Although I'm 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 partial to Jackie Brown. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackie Brown is it, criminally underrated. Pam Greer was just fantastic. Everything about that that was like it had quirky characters. Like Michael Keaton was kind of weird, and so was Robert De Niro to some degree. Just a fun film. Like that was like the. It was kind of like an anti-Tarantino movie, but kind of a Tarantino movie at the same time. You know what? I'd forgotten that Michael Keaton was in that movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I love Michael Keaton. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Kind of an under the radar, uh, you know, he wasn't, I mean, he was a supporting actor, obviously, there. And, you know, I think a lot of people were kind of maybe outshined by Greer and Robert Forster as well. But if I'm not mistaken, Forrester got a nomination for that performance. In yes, Jackie he did. Supporting. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, I agree. I, I'm, a, I'm a big Jackie Brown. I think more people need to see Jackie Brown, even though, you know, I love Kill Bill and I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Inglorious Bastards. Um, you know, not as I've not I've never gotten into the um, the Reservoir Dogs. I like Reservoir Dogs, but it's not Tarantino's best or even close to the top for me. It's it was, you know, it was a great, it was great for him because it led him into Pulp Fiction and got him the ability to make Pulp Fiction. But everybody that, that just like stands up and, you know, defends Reservoir Dogs as Tarantino's best work. I just don't think they've seen enough Tarantino work to, to really understand the filmmaker that he is. Fair enough. Yeah. I saw Reservoir Dogs once. I haven't gone back to it and I own a copy. So <laughs> I am the same way. I've seen it twice, but yeah, I've, I own a copy and I, it's probably more just for, for safekeeping to have a Tarantino collection, but yeah, it's not, not the first here. It's probably, I like death. I like death proof. I'm one of the few that liked death proof. I thought Kurt Russell was awesome in that film. He was so fun as stuntman Mike. I, I know people just like dump on that movie a lot and as being his worst film, but I think Reservoir Dogs is his worst film. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> all right, George. Well, I'm getting, getting into a yeah, I'm getting into a Tarantino fix now. All of a sudden, I don't know how that came from Wes Anderson, but uh, what do you got coming up next week? I think we've got another big release, don't we? Um, you know, um, let me check the calendar. I, I, what the Eternals? Hell? Oh, Eternals is next. Yeah. yeah, I got three. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in a row. What else do you have? Next week, uh, hold on. Uh, come on, calendar. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? There we go. Um, Eternals is Monday, King Richard is Tuesday. Okay, and very exciting to see that. I got notice of something today that didn't make it in my calendar yet. So let's go here. Hold on. Belfast, Kenneth Branagh. Oh, and that is an Oscar darling. So I'm very interested to see what you have to say about that. That's been the darling of the festival. And a lot of people are pinpointing that as a multiple Oscar nominated film. So, and Kenneth, you know, Kenneth Branagh is sort of an underrated director. I think a lot of people will. They don't know who he is, but they, they would recognize him on screen, and you'd say that's who that is. They would be like, "Oh, okay, that's Kenneth Branagh," you know. I I love Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, he's as fantastic. Actor, yeah, as an actor and a director, he he had a misfire, and I think it's because he stepped outside of what he does well with one of the Jack Ryan movies. Oh yeah, the oh, Shadow Recruit or something. Yeah, he directed yeah. the one with uh, 
Chris Pine. Oh, Chris Pine. Yeah. And mind you, I can you tell Chris Pine. Yeah, I can tolerate all the Jack Ryan movies. Yeah. And there was really nothing wrong with the film, but I, I just don't think people appreciated what he brought to it. Right. I, so, you know. But now that's the bang bang week. And so I'll have the Eternals next week. And fantastic. Um there is it's it's hilarious, and I'll share this with you. Um my son comes to me after going to a screening the other night. He goes, I bet you've never seen a black exploitation western. Oh, um, yeah, the new uh, Regina King movie. What's it? Uh, like, the Heart of They Fall. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, are you kidding? Black exploitation crossed every cinematic genre, and I named one movie off the top of my head. So right. I'm gonna I'm gonna have that as well. Is it is it more black exploitation or is it like straightforward? But you know, it, he my my son is very he he does what you do. Right. What you're doing. He he has his own quote unquote network, blah blah blah. Right. And him and his friends sit around and hash it out about movies. Okay. So he knows what he's talking about. So he he recognizes the genre. Right. So it wouldn't shock me if he was he was right. It's just yeah. I'm I'm trying to tell them there were black exploitation. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, the way Netflix is kind of framing it, it, I mean, I would never, never kind of peg it as a black exploitation western. You know, it, it seemed like it was like a, a straightforward kind of picture. But uh, I'm kind of excited, more excited about that now at this point. Um, if that maybe is, uh, you know, kind of crossing the genre lines a little bit. I'm very curious, and I'll be watching tomorrow. So. All right, fantastic. Well, George, as always. We thank you uh, for joining us. You can uh, follow all of George's work, whether it's Browns, Akron, Zips, or movie reviews at By George Thomas on Twitter. You can read all of his uh, stories and movie reviews in the Akron Beacon Journal or on beaconjournal.com. So, George, until next week when we get dip back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it seems like uh, the one what two-year delay has, has e equally been filled here by the three or four movies we've seen this year. Uh, and this is maybe the one with the biggest fanfare, even though no one knows anything about the Eternals. But isn't that ironic? <laughs> yeah, Chloe Zhao, you know, fresh off of an Oscar win, you know, a lot of sh big shoes to fill. Can she, uh, you know, get into the mainstream? That's uh, kind of what I'm interested to see. So until next week, we will uh, talk more movies with you, George. Thanks for stopping by. All right, Craig.